Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In keeping with the central banking theme of the show, theme of the day, Jean-Claude Trichet, former president of the ECB, former governor of the Bank of France, and now chairman of the Group of 30, joins us from Paris. Good morning. Good morning. We'll talk about central banking in a bit, I'm sure, but let's start with a a new report out from the G30 uh, looking at shadow banking and and capital markets, risks and opportunities therein. And I I should start with a basic question here. We heard about the role that shadow banking played in the financial crisis, of course. Uh, How have things changed here in the intervening uh, seven or eight years? Well, I would say that uh, we have made progress because, as you remember, uh, the crisis itself was very much associated with uh, uh, abnormal shadow banking behavior, with the CDOs that were uh, dramatically dangerous, the ABCP, the asset-backed securities, the structured investment vehicles, and so forth. All this has diminished considerably. So if I look at the advanced economy, I would say we have made progress in this respect, and uh, uh, we have to be vigilant, of course. We have to remain very prudent and cautious, but progress were made. Where I am, and we are in the G30, less, uh, I would say, optimistic, is that at the level of the world, at the level of the global economy, we see that leverage has augmented since the crisis. The global debt as a proportion of GDP came uh, at the global level from uh, 270 up to 299%, so an increase of $70 trillion. So it's big, and it means that the overall leverage is even higher today than it was just at at the eve of the crisis. So, again, no no room for complacency in any respect. You, you, You invoke some of those abbreviations. There is an opacity to shadow banking. That has made it hard to regulate in the past. How satisfied are you with the regulatory apparatus looking at shadow banking right now? Well, I think that we have to continue to work because uh, a lot uh, has been done on the banks uh, themselves. uh, And uh, that is, uh, in my opinion, good and uh, has been done well. It's a work in progress, but uh, a lot has been done. In uh, shadow banking, we are in a universe which is more complex, which is objectively less regulated. And we have to be prudent, again, as I said, and cautious. And we have a number of recommendations that uh, we are sending to regulators and policymakers, and that are part, if I may, of the message of the G30 in this domain. It's a a, a good work, I have to say, if I may um, make the propaganda myself, uh, and particularly Adair Turner, Jacques Delarosière, and uh, Masaki Shirakawa have been working uh, very hard 
to produce yeah. this uh, analysis, which, uh, again, is important. The fact that the global leverage has augmented was not perceived, in my opinion, uh, sufficiently clearly at a global level. Right. Well, I, I, again, I saw the report, and as you mentioned, uh, Lord Turner involved. I, I really was quite taken with the balance sheet analysis within the report. Jean-Claude Trichet arguably defined the European Central Bank, Mr. Doisenberg preceding him, uh, but Jean-Claude Trichet giving an identity uh, to the bank that, of course, Mr. Draghi has carried forward. Uh, President Trichet, instead of a look back and, of course, the courageous look forward of your G30 report, help me here with the task in front for Chair Yellen. Clearly, there's a massive administration, government change, if you will, in Washington. What should a central bank head do when they see such political change? First of all, I would say the, the banks uh, have been made, the central banks have been made independent uh, the world over. Uh, because uh, the anchoring of expectations is extremely important. And I have to say that the experience of the crisis demonstrated even more how important it was to rely upon a solid institution that would anchor expectation. Uh, so I expect, of course, uh, uh, the Fed uh, in any circumstance to remain this independent anchor. Uh, which uh, reassure, if I may, uh, all investors, savers, market participants. Now, of course, uh, we will see exactly what uh, are the new policies uh, that, uh, that are uh, envisaged and will be implemented. And the uh, Federal Reserve will take into account all this to produce what it is called to produce, namely, as you know better than anybody, uh, growth, jobs, and price stability in line with a definition which has been uh, decided upon in uh, 2012 right. and is, is the same uh, in all central banks of the advanced economy. You know, we have the same definition of price stability in the right. U.S., well, in Japan, in, the, in Europe. But this is critical. And I spoke of this to Madame Lagarde the other day, her conversation with our John Micklethwaite. And I interrupted John rudely, uh, yeah. President Trichet, not that I would ever do that. Uh, but I interrupted Mr. Micklethwaite, and I talked to Madame Lagarde about the tendency in our politics towards a zero-sum analysis and even a new mercantilism across some of our societies. Do you detect that Europe and the United States is moving towards a more mercantilist relationship? I, I clearly see uh, danger there. I uh, don't hesitate to say that uh, it is the open markets, it is the international trade which has been playing a very important role in elevating the standard of living of the entire world. Of course, mainly the emerging economies, India, China, Brazil, Mexico, and uh, also permitted to augment the facility that the uh, advanced economy uh, citizens have in purchasing uh, goods and services. So we, we are living in a universe where we have to recognize that uh, uh, the world has been helped by international trade. That being said, it is clear that uh, in all advanced economy, we have to cope with uh, anxiety coming from uh, part of our uh, citizens 
And this anxiety I interpreted as, you know, they are telling us things are going very rapidly, maybe too rapidly. Science and technology is going extremely rapidly, and we cannot, we cannot uh, slow down science and technology. Uh, the growth of India and China is going extremely rapidly, and we have no way to, to tell them. Uh, you should, uh, you know, moderate your growth when we know that they are still at a level of standard of living, which is very low in comparison with us. Mm. So we, we have to take that into account. It's a complex world. It's a complex world with anxiety coming from uh, uh, some of our citizens, uh, part of our citizens, which are very, very uh, loud and clear uh, in the present period, both, I would say, in the U.S., in uh, the U.K. and in continental. Europe, not to speak of Japan, and that calls for, uh, you know, very, very tough, in my opinion, policies in terms of education or training, permanent education, retraining, and uh, taking care of the people that are, you know, in a situation which is obviously difficult because of the rapidity of the changes. Jean-Claude Fichet, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And again, congratulations on your G30 report on central, on shadow banking and central banking yeah. as well. Here on Fed Day, I want to bring in uh, Peter Hooper, chief economist uh, at Deutsche Bank, as we begin our coverage here uh, ahead of that Fed meeting, uh, its conclusion at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Peter, what are you going to be listening for today? As we've been, been saying all morning here, the, the odds of a Fed hike uh, seem uh, all priced in and 100% probability through Fed funds futures. What are you going to be listening for when Fed Chair Janet Yellen speaks uh, shortly after the release of that statement? Well, uh, there's an awful lot that uh, can be asked of uh, the, the chair. First of all, she, she will be asked, uh, what, how, how does she see policy uh, in the new administration going forward, and how does that affect the Fed? And, um, we'll get a very thorough we'll, answer, we'll I'm get, sure. <laughs> we'll get a very thorough answer, indeed. Uh, uh, no, she can't, she can't really tell us much. The question is, um, it, it should, should be pushed a bit mm. and should be asked, I think, hypothetically, what if uh, we get a significant fiscal expansion? What, what will the Fed do? And uh, there, I think she has to follow the line that... Uh, Bill Dudley gave uh, earlier this week that, yes, of course, if we get uh, significant further stimulus to aggregate demand, the Fed will be raising rates faster. So that, I think that sort of indication that uh, uh, the, the risks are shifting in that direction uh, will be probably the most important thing we get out of it. Um, there are a lot of different other things that can be uh, addressed, of course, uh, having to do with uh, the, the potential appointments of the Fed uh, coming up. Um, I mean, there are two empty seats to fill. How will these be filled? Uh, uh, what does she think about uh, the potential for a new vice chair of regulation, mm. regulatory side of things? Uh, uh, and uh, is she uh, her her own thoughts on uh, further reappointment herself down the road? There you um, go. She'll 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 skillfully avoid uh, addressing a lot of these questions. Dodge like a pro. Uh, you know, on the point of personnel, uh, Donald Trump has the, the the potential here to to put six people, I think, in, in positions at the Fed here in the next 18 months. How, how soon could we see the shape of or the, the sensibility of the Fed change? Well, I, I don't expect – this will be a, a topic of much discussion, as certainly as, sure. as 2017 wears on. 
Um, I'm not expecting uh, any immediate uh, departures. Uh, there are two seats to fill now, but uh, uh, if uh, Chair Yellen is not reappointed, um, uh, I would expect to see, um, as you say, as many as six uh, people, people uh, as, yeah. as many as four additional departing. But I don't expect to see a big change until we get into 2018. What struck me about the last press conference, Dr. Hooper, was the conflation of ex-post and ex-ante analysis. And through no fault of Chair Yellen's, she's being grilled about a Fed getting out front of the debate versus a Fed that is reactive to the discussion. Are we going to have that same conversation this afternoon? Well, I, the, the, I think the, the discussion is, has changed pretty dramatically. I'll say, yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm heading. Uh, I mean, so so we we were we were wondering if if the the, the market was ever going to catch up to the Fed uh, in 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 terms of expectations, uh, and now the market seems to be uh, almost uh, surging ahead near term. Um, uh, the Fed does not have the luxury of assuming a major change in policy and and mm -hmm. uh, uh, in terms of making its own forecast uh, going forward. Well, it needs to see a little bit more evidence about what's going to be happening. I do think there will be some catch-up. I think the, the markets move quite a bit. I expect the Fed to move more over the next year as well. Really giving us great perspective this morning, Peter Hooper, to frame the Deutsche Bank view. Maybe it's 3% GDP. It's a reflation that sustains uh, – as well. Dr. Hooper, part of the enthusiasm the chairman, Chair Yellen has to deal with is a consumption-driven recovery. Everybody's buoyant. The animal spirits, which you mentioned earlier, click in, and consumption is there. Do you see any indication investment picks up? Well, the investment numbers recently have continued to be sluggish. Uh, I, th I think the the indication is what we see in, in various surveys of business sentiment, uh, certainly the NFIB, small business. Uh, I think corporate America beginning to look up uh, just the stock market as an indication that uh, things are uh, on a on a on an upward tilt here. Uh, but but much of this is still forward looking. Uh, much of it is based on the fact that business investment has been in the doldrums for the last five years. Uh, business capital stock relative labor is uh, at, at all, growth at all-time lows, uh, productivity extremely low. We have a long way to go. There's a lot of potential, I think, and uh, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's reason to be hopeful. Uh, the early signs seem to be pointing in that direction. What's the, the biggest deficit in the, the U.S. economy right now as you see it? Is it, is it productivity? I think I think the uh, rate of productivity expansion uh, over the last five five and a half years for overall GDP has been essentially zero. Non-farm business has been half a percent, but that tends to grow faster than the overall economy. Uh, so yes, that that is certainly the, the a, a big negative. How does this uh, this central bank? How does the Fed deal with inflation being? Where it is, we were listening to Mario Draghi last week, and he uh, tried to address how those policymakers, he and his colleagues, uh, went through to make their decision, paying some attention to the fact inflation is not where they want it to be. How does the Fed do the same thing today? Well, uh, I mean, they say it's uh, it's still lower than they'd like to see it. Uh, I think there are signs that it's beginning to move in the right direction. Certainly, inflation expectations have picked up uh, pretty impressively. The the market the inflation compensation numbers bouncing back pretty sharply. Um, the the Michigan survey beginning to tick up just a little bit. So uh, there are early signs there, but I think the 
the way the Fed will hint at it today will be a recognition of the fact that the unemployment rate has fallen quite a bit further. Uh, we're down to 4.6. Uh, we're below what uh, they were saying yeah. Nehru is, and, and uh, we're starting to see some pressure on wages. Charles Plosser, the former president CEO of the Philadelphia Fed, sat where you're sitting today, yesterday, and, and I asked him about uh, unanimity and all that we've heard from uh, Fed presidents, uh, some from Fed governors as well, and he says it's a good thing that we get such a diversity of views that we hear from so many people that they're available for interviews and they give uh, speeches. Mm -hmm. Is it a good thing in your view, or is it adding to the, the confusion, the lack of transparency, the lack of, of clarity from, from this Fed Reserve? Well, you know, th th this was a topic of uh, quite a bit of uh, analysis and discussion at a uh, conference in Washington. Brookings had uh, a couple weeks ago. I happened to participate in, and this was a one of the key themes was the cacophony that uh, is is raised uh, by by the, by the cloud of uh, Fed speeches. Mm -hmm. uh, Fed presidents uh, have a duty to inform their constituents about how they're thinking about things, but I think things could be done a little bit more clearly. Um, two suggestions were made. One is that at, at, at the, uh, if, if there's a meeting without a press conference at which the, the chair can explain things a little more fully, the, the, the varying range of, of views, uh, the statement might might uh, spell this out a little more clearly. Some more minutes-like. Uh, yeah, al allowing allowing. Uh, speakers, when they go out and say, "Here's here's the House <clears throat> view. Here's here's what the consensus yeah. is. Here's what my view is, and and why it differs." Uh, so to, just to well, just to reduce some of the uncertainty sure. there. The arch debate here is we have a president elect, whatever anybody's politics, who was elected by an angry people, uh, from coast to coast. Richard Cohen's op-ed in the Washington Post captured this beautifully about those people versus them people. The Fed represents the East Coast and clearly represents, in the mind of a lot of Americans, the elites. Is there going to be a pressure to be dovish when it is a hawkish time? Is that the arch question for Chair Yellen? Well, uh, Chair Yellen is not uh, an unreconstructed dove by any stretch. Uh, she's been hawkish in the past, and she'll be hawkish in the future when, when the time comes. Well, this is an important statement. You, you believe within the research of the former president of the San Francisco Fed that there have been times where Chair Yellen has been hawkish. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I would say Mr. Henselink probably would disagree with you on well, that. Well, uh, he needs to go back and take a look at the record of, of uh, Chair Yellen as a governor in the 1990s when she was pushing Alan Greenspan to raise rates faster because the unemployment rate had fallen below Nehru and inflation was a risk. Uh, now, uh, the chairman at the time uh, saw productivity boom uh, 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 coming along and, and keeping inflation in check. And that was an unexpected development, and he proved right. But at the time, uh, Yellen was, was arguing based on uh, what was uh, reasonably sound economic analysis that uh, Fed should be more aggressive. I, I, you know, so it's been appropriate to be dovish up to this point because inflation's been too low. Once inflation moves to being too high, I think you'll see uh, uh, different stripes coming out here. Tom brings up the, the gentleman from, from Texas, Mr. Henserling, and there is this move on Capitol Hill to uh, reform the way the Fed works, reform the way that relationship is structured between Congress and, and the Federal Reserve. How do you begin to, to forecast what that might mean for, for the economy if we do have a, a Congress that wields more control or takes a more active role with control of, of the Fed? This is a very good question, one that I hope comes up this afternoon, uh, and it would be interesting to see how it's answered. But, but so 
I, I think there's been reluctance to there, a couple pushes here. The, probably the major one is we'd like the Fed to be more rules-based so we can understand the basis for their decisions more clearly. Problem is that uh, there are many rules, uh, and uh, the the key parameters on any one of these rules is a is, is a, a very uncertain concept. Where what is Nehru? What is uh, full employment? What is uh, uh, the natural rate of interest, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, but I think perhaps more can be done uh, by the Fed to try to uh, come to a, a closer agreement about what their reaction function is. How they're going to be responding to various uh, to to you know various under various scenarios, and that does move you a little bit closer to a rule. I, I think the the sense is that the the view in the uh, in Congress on the Republican side is softening a little bit on on the, on the demands here. They, they they don't want to put the Fed in a straitjacket. They mm. and, and now that you have a, a Republican administration coming into office, it's not going to be in their right. interest to see uh, rates. Uh, Marching upward aggressively. Well, that's uh, right. That's right. We're going to go marching. The second derivative of what we're talking about here. Are we falling back into a Greenspan measured quarter point, quarter point, quarter point? Or do we need a little more Arthur Burns aggressiveness? I think we're going to be seeing a little bit more of the latter going forward if, if things pan out the way yeah. we expect. That's, yeah. a, that's a huge statement by Dr. Hooper there, folks. That is um, clearly outside the consensus thinking uh, right now. Uh, Peter Hooper with Deutsche Bank, thank you so much. Most generous of you on this busy morning, uh, this Fed day is well. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. get right to it with Michael Mayo. What a run for these stocks. What a moonshot. On a monthly chart, JP Morgan is out three standard deviations. E does even Michael Mayo go to holds across the board? Well, well Tom, we were with you at, back in the spring when we said we were more bullish on banks than yep. we've been in 20 years. Um, bank stocks, even with the rally, are still at the same level where they were 16 years ago. So a lot of the move in the bank stocks is mm -hmm. catch up better recognition for the strong foundation, and yes, some hope that the new administration will facilitate faster growth, which would help banks. Right. And Goldman Sachs, with your published enthusiasm of October 154, now enjoying 238 per share. Let me focus, particularly for Global Wall Street, our audience in New York and London that listens religiously, on the religious change at Goldman Sachs. Is it a general, I mean, Mr. Blankfein has been ill, wonderful recovery from cancer. Mr. Cohn moves on to the Trump administration. Is it an organized change? Is it a seat change? Is it a generational change? This is a, a natural change. Uh, first, the CEO Lloyd Blankfein is healthy, and the moves at Goldman show that Lloyd Blankfein, CEO, is not going anywhere anytime soon. So the number two, Gary Cohn, uh, moving to government, 
you know, that a lot of Goldman people do that from time to time. And then you have the two new chief operating officers. Uh, since 1869, Goldman Sachs has all been has been about serving clients. So the head of investment banking, uh, David Solomon, he's about clients on the investment banking side. Harvey Schwartz, he's been better with clients on the trading and capital market side as well as right. the CFO the last few years. So, the, and in fact, Goldman hasn't had much change the last few years. So the recent changes there is a degree of catch up for the the flow of management upward. How does this co-president role tend to work out? you have two people sharing a job like that? I hate cove roles at all the banks that I cover. Uh, but I will say somehow Goldman has made it work better than others. In fact, you know, Tom will remember when we talked about Citigroup, when that merger happened, we, we called it Noah's Ark because they brought two of every manager along. That was with Travelers and yeah. Citigroup. So we hate Coastie co-roles, but Goldman's made it work. Sometimes they have dual roles. Sometimes they have three per people in this, the same role, and it's just part of their corporate culture. Does this bank have any trouble retaining talent? We were talking to Lionel Laurent, one of our gadfly columnists based in London, about Michael Sherwood leaving the, the European operation at a fairly young age still. Here we have some jostling at the, at the top ranks, but uh, is there growing frustration among those who realize that there isn't much movement within the bank? Well, you know, as an analyst, we always have to look at potential red flags. When you have different people leaving, you know, it gets your attention, but we try to connect the dots, and we haven't been able to do so. Again, Goldman's had less than typical, uh, you know, change in their management, so some of this is just natural. Mike, man, this, this is a great time to, to to pause on this. The media, particularly, it's blank, fine, blank, fine, Gorman, Gorman, TM, TM, whatever, uh, you know, stump, stump, stump for how long is you're on at Wells Fargo. And yet you look at the management committee of Goldman Sachs, and it's an eclectic group of deeply experienced people like it, every other firm. What's the number one thing the media gets wrong in its coverage of any firm, and, and in this case, Goldman Sachs? What, what drives Mike Mayo nuts about the coverage of your Wall Street? I'm going to not give you the answer you want right away. I mean, the coverage was definitely right around the time of the financial crisis. I mean, banks took too much risk. There are many chefs in the crisis kitchen, and the banking industry deserved a lot of the body blows okay. that they had to take. What's frustrating to me is that the foundation of Goldman and the banking industry, the balance sheets, are the strongest that they've been in a generation. That's still underappreciated by investors, the government, and I'd say the public at large. Thank you, regulators, for making banks as strong as they are today with record capital and record liquidity. You're not, you're not having any banks fail anytime soon. Now, we have to be vigilant to make sure you don't take the excess. It's like you had before the financial crisis, but U.S. banks are very strong. Help us then with the latest bump on the road for Wells Fargo yesterday, the failure to pass this living will uh, test. How worrisome is that to you when you look at uh, how that bank has sort of existed in this new regulatory space? So Wells Fargo failed what's called the, the, the living will uh, analysis, and that's part of the extra regulation. That's one of the things that makes banks a lot stronger today. The guardrails are firm, leverage is down, they've de-risked. And in this case, what the regulators require is that if you're going to fail, you need to have a, a process that shows how you would wind down. Wells Fargo didn't get it done. They've clearly been distracted with all their other cross-selling issues, and uh, they're going to have to get this right or face some curbs on their growth. But the point is regulators are a lot more vigilant than they were 
say, before the financial crisis. Help us with the X factor of regulation going forward here into a Donald Trump administration. What does that mean for the uh, value of these banks, the way these banks are going to conduct business, if we could see regulation relaxed or regulation changed? So first, we'd say the biggest impact for U.S. banks from a Trump administration is with higher interest rates. Mm -hmm. So we'll see if rates go higher today. That's a little bit of oxygen for bank profits. Another positive would be a lower tax rate. If you lower the corporate tax rate from 35% to 25%. Uh, a third factor would be loan growth to the extent that GDP growth accelerates. That would be a positive. Oh, and by the way, regulation, even if it doesn't get easier, right. you stop <clears throat> layering does, on new rules. Does the oxygen of a yield curve steepening is it the same as it was pre-crisis? I'd say that the benefits to banks from a yield curve steepening is even better right Why now. Why is it? That's, that's brilliant. Why Be is because that? Because you're going from such abnormally low interest rates that the first 100 basis point of increase, it helps the bank net interest margins, it helps their revenues, and still doesn't pressure borrowers. I mean, with low rates, exactly, you still can service your debts much more easily. This is a, a golden moment for banks, these first several rate hikes. And then within that, are the, is the discipline and the rigor there not to do stupid things when we mean revert to a higher yield through that golden window where everyone benefits? Uh, we hope that U.S. banks don't do stupid things. <clears throat> and that, 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 that's no. That, I mean, see look, how he answered that. That's decades of experience. <laughs> no, it's it, it's it's a lot of pain here too. No, no, we we've we've seen the problems with the banks. The early '90s, the commercial real estate crisis. Then you had the the tech bubble, and you had the housing bubble. And are we going to have another bubble? So we're certainly yeah. you know watching that, and we don't want banks to do stupid things. And that's yeah. one reason why we go to annual meetings, Tom. Remember, you know we're oh, here. We go, <laughs> but we go to annual meetings to try to hold these bank banks accountable. And right. we've, ha we've had a change in management teams, sometimes the same uh, board of directors. So let's hold the board of directors accountable so they don't repeat the same mistakes as in the past when banks are as strong as they are today with the tailwind. How are you watching what's uh, what's unfolding uh, in Europe? Not your, your base of coverage, but are there lessons to be learned about what, from what we're seeing there uh, that can be applied to U.S. banks? Well, I think it's the other way around. Uh -huh. What lessons should the European banks take from the U.S. banks? And the lesson is raise capital, reinforce the balance sheets, raise liquidity uh, when you can. Uh, it, it's, it's really surprising that the European banks haven't shored up their balance sheets more, and here we are almost into 2017. It's, it's really amazing. Mike Mayo, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with CLSA, particularly wisdom on Goldman Sachs. Again, Mr. Cohn attends the Trump transition. Gary, can you think see Gary Cohn will be... I wonder if he'll be at Davos. I doubt it. He'll probably be Piano at the bar. inaugural ball. Keep, keep on alert. I don't know. No, oh, I think right, he'll be at the ball. inaugural yeah. ball. I, mean, I forgot that they conflict this year. They conflict. Your allegiance is known, though. You yeah. will be. Do you know it's my bar. 13th year? <laughs> is that right? World. I did not know that. I thought it would have been ninth or 10th. John Tucker, it's my 13th year of attending. He gets a do special you, pin. Do you have <laughs> any idea what his expense account over 13 years is? I think it's like a special black box. We're it's, not allowed, we're like allowed the, to peek into. It's like the GDP of an island nation, right? Uh, it is not. Red O'Keeper of the Amex is in charge <laughs> of that. Fred Day, David, I'll let's use this as a quick sum. What's your 
What's your take right now on what you're going to try to observe this afternoon? Yeah, as you've been saying, I think the news conference is the most interesting part for me. Not to say that your analysis with Joe and Scarlett will not be important as well, but uh, I'd, go I mean, with, <laughs> I'd go with a press conference. <laughs> I'm eager to hear what uh, what Janet Yellen has to say about uh, future personnel at the Fed, if she'll say anything on that, and uh, uh, sort of the pace of increases here in the new in the new year. How about you? Uh, the press conference, and I really want to know about how she moves forward on reflation. Mm. And if she brings up nominal GDP, I doubt she'd bring up animal spirits. That's too politically loaded. I haven't heard her say it, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I just don't hear that from Chair Yellen. But I really want to look, see what she says about nominal dynamics. And I, I just don't know where she's going with that. I do agree with what we've heard from everyone, that it will be radically different than the previous press conference, as is where we are. Douglas Cass has been following equity markets and the periphery for generations. He has been short, and we're going to ask him if he's been pounded. Shorting is a hazardous sport. Douglas Cass, good morning. Have you covered your shorts? Um, I actually covered most of my shorts in, the, in that big uh, futures decline, the Wednesday morning or early morning hours following the uh, Trump victory. In the interim interval, I've had several um, journeys back to the short side. Yeah, most of them unsuccessful. And I actually, um, I think the the way you survive as a short biased investor is to uh, have pretty good risk discipline. So I tend to right. stop my losses mm-hmm. rather quickly. But I did re-enter the short side uh, the day before yesterday again, and I've been pressing. I pressed. All day okay. uh, yesterday. Let's assume you're right. I mean, you got the Cubs wrong. We know That's that. That's a big but, assumption. I got the Cubs wrong, but there's yeah. 62 days till pitchers yeah. and catchers. Well, there's the 62 Sox. days for the Red Sox, but they need to buy some more starting pitching to keep up with the latest acquisitions. Doug, the amount of money they're spending on these starting pitchers is is, is extraordinary. It's a reflation. Oh my gosh! I mean, I, I think if you um, present value, um, Kovax is. <laughs> um, earnings, it'd be like a million, about $2 million a yeah. year only. Yeah. Uh, Doug, help me here with the reflation <clears throat> trade. At some point, you believe it will ebb and move the other way. Yeah, what, I, what are I you do. trying to observe? Well, first of all, I um, observe uh, a disappointing November industrial production, a disappointing retail sales figure. Um, I sp- spent last weekend. Uh, a week ago, with retail consultants, which suggested to me that December is off to a very bad retail start. And I think it'll be exacerbated by um, the uh, shattering and the refinancing market, which um, is part and parcel of the rate rise and also the increase uh, in the price of crude oil is hurting consumers. I think that too many investors are putting on um, sun tanning lotion in the expectation of sunny days that lie ahead, but they're only likely in the eye of the hurricane, and they're going to be filled with disappointment. Um, if, if we think today the general consensus, and I love to play the contrary, is bullish on bonds, uh, bullish on stocks, and bearish on bonds. In fact, the Bank of America did a survey which uh, concluded that only 6% of the economists expect lower interest rates in 2017 over 2016. This is the same group that has been wrong on rates for four years. I think we all have to remember Bob Farrell's rule number nine, quote, when all forecasters and experts agree, mm. 
something else is going to happen. So final analysis, a Trump administration will live in uncertainty great again. Um, not, not the opposite. Doug, I know that you've been, been adding life insurance to your portfolio as well. What do you see there? What do you see in that slice of the sector? Well, I, I did very well. Well, as, as you know, uh, prior to July of 2016, when I called the generational bottom in bond yields, I had a contrary view on interest rates that they were going lower, not higher. And I was short uh, MetLife and uh, Lincoln National, and the stocks were went down 35% to 40%, and I've just re-entered them yesterday. Um, they're terribly leveraged to uh, interest rates, which I believe will be down in 2017, not up, and they're leveraged to the equity market. Uh, I think the whole the, the broad question that we face is, to me, whether uh, secular stagnation is a thing of the past, and if the uh, currently lifted animal spirits and higher stock prices brought on by the election victory by Donald Trump is going to lead to secular economic optimism and the realization of much faster economic growth with its proposed market-based solutions versus government-based solutions of the previous administration. And I'm skeptical as the conditions that exist today, say, versus the Reagan administration, are totally different. The economic, political, social market conditions represent a, a huge hurdle, particularly in the face of policy uncertainties, both absolutely and relative to Trump himself. Remind us what happened after Ronald Reagan was, was elected. We saw a bit of a bull market, and that, that did not last long after uh, Inauguration Day. I think, I, I think, as a matter of fact, it came, came to a close there. On, on sure, there was a honeymoon from early November to the January third week of January, his inauguration, in which equities rose by 8.5%. In the next year, uh, 15 months, they declined by 25%. How valuable is it to look at that analog right now, to, to use that as a point of comparison? I think, I think it's very valid um, um, and, and because there, I would say that there's this giant leap across the abyss, this giant leap of faith on the part of investors and traders. My view is just as monetary policy failed to energize domestic economic yeah. growth and didn't, didn't remedy the gap of income and wealth inequality, oh. I think this baton yeah. pass, this fiscal solution, is going to be less successful than the consensus yeah. expectations. We are joined by Doug Cass, founder and president of Seabreeze Partners. And, Doug, I have to ask how you plan to ring in Dow 20,000 if, in fact, we get there. What kind of celebration do you have planned? increasingly short of stock prices rise. <laughs> <laughs> that is not to say, uh, by the way, Tom, that I don't have uh, longs. I have plenty of longs. Some of them have been great investments this year. DuPont's up 45%. Radian's up 75% since we bought it in the summer. You, have, you ever seen, have you ever seen a presumed reflation, a presumed bet to nominal GDP like we're in right now? No, I've never seen it. I've never and seen it. I've no. never seen it, but, you know, we ended the last segment, and I basically said a statement that, that, um, that, fed, that fed policy since '09 has trickled up to the wealthy, not to the middle class, and that fiscal policy may also trickle up and not trickle down. So this, that, this is really important. Let's look at corporate tax rates as an example, which is, you know, a reduction of that fuels that re reflation trade, correct? Trump plans to cut them. 
When Reagan was president, he took them from 70% to 28%. That's impactful. Today, the statutory rate is only 35%. But the effective rate, the rate that the S&P 500 components are paying is close to only 22%. So a reduction to, say, 25% won't have a comparable impact that it did years ago. And the other thing, let's look at repatriation very quickly. The money brought back may not be growth-inducing. It may not be um, contributed to that reflation trade. Cisco's CEO talked about repatriation in a Bloomberg interview last week. Um, He said a repatriation of overseas cash would result in a larger commitment to buybacks and a more aggressive M&A activity. Mm -hmm. There was no mention to CapEx or job growth. And if you think of it, Tom, we're at a 75% capitalization rate. Why would industry start building plant and equipment with um, with such slack? They won't. They'll buy yeah. back even more stock and more inflated prices, raise their dividends, right. feathering their individual beds, and not benefit the average Joe. I mean, I mean, Doug, you know, if I get out the Bloomberg here, folks, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to throw this out on Twitter as well. This is as boring as it gets. Ugh. The Dow Jones Industrial <laughs> Average, 200-day moving average. And pros like Doug Cass keep abreast of how extended we are Above the 200-day moving average at 18,147. I mean, we're out over our skis. Everybody can agree on that, right? Towards that statement, the seven-day relative strength index of the Dow Jones Industrial Average is 95.5. I asked Peter Bookvar to go back and tell me the last time, yesterday, the last time it was at that level. He went back to 1970, and he couldn't find a higher reading. Yesterday's intraday put call was at the lowest level since April of 2012. And if you look at CNN's fear and greed index, what emotion is driving the market now? It's almost at 90, 100 is extreme greed. I can't remember this high. Now, you want to buy stocks with a relative strength index at this price with optimism about policy so high. How do you, as a grizzled pro who's enjoyed losing a lot of money, how do you make your trade Given that momentum, do you dollar cost in or some would laugh and say dollar loss in? How do you affect, how do you pull the trigger to go the other way against the Trump reflation? I typically um, um, enter trades uh, very small um, um, because um, I don't know what will happen to the market. So I tend to average into positions and it's a good risk control discipline. And um, I have a sense of stops in a certain, a very small percentage that I'm that on trading shorts, especially as it relates to the short side uh, of indices that I'm willing to lose. And I take back the position, um, wash, rinse, and repeat. Do you add to your small initial positions as the st- you're going along here as the stock goes up in price? Yes. Okay. What you just heard there, folks, is the number one most important theory out there. The math boys would call that anti-Martingale theory Uh led by Ed Thorpe at MIT a few years ago. And David, what you just heard there from Mr. Cass is the quickest way not to lose money. (laughs) Continue. You know, I always say that, that the only certainty is the lack of certainty in this world. Uh, And, if you need an example of that, look at the stock market over the last six weeks. You know, 
Bertrand Russell once wrote that the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so sure of themselves and wiser people are full of doubts. How are we just wrapping up here? Uh, I wonder how, when you look at the market excuse environment, me, right? Sorry. Excuse me, Bertrand Russell was a Red Sox apologist. Of the Russell 2000. Just, right? <laughs> <clears throat> My largest uh, short is the Russell Index. There you go. Result, there by the way. Go. Just when you look at the market environment here, how, how different is it uh, coming to the end of the year than it has been in years past in light of what we've seen since, since the election? What does the landscape look like compared to in years past? This is, you know, this, we face the orange swan. We've yeah. never faced this orange swan before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the associated animal spirits that have emerged from it, which have surprised. Yeah. Most of the same people that are bullish on the market because of price action were bearish on a, a Trump election victory. True. So, um, you know, I recognize also that Bertrand Russell, who said all movements go too far. Um, so I'm looking for extremes to short. I see it, as you mentioned, in investor sentiment. I see it in valuations. After all, against gap earnings, uh, we're at the 98th percentile uh, against uh, Schiller's um, uh, uh, Cape index, right. the Cape multiples. We're all okay. with the 97% percentile. We gotta, we gotta leave it there. Doug Cass, never enough time. If we don't speak to you before the end of the year, uh, have a good holiday season. Oh, yes, my greats. 62 days till pitchers and catchers. Doug Cass with Seabreeze Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.